This is a recording of Demythicizing the Lamanites' Skin of Blackness by Garrett M. Steenblick, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by the author. Abstract. Racial bias is antithetical to the Book of Mormon's cardinal purpose, to proclaim the infinite grandeur of the atonement of Jesus Christ. The book teaches that the Lord welcomes and redeems the entire human family, black and white, bond and free, people of all hues, from ebony to ivory. Critical thinkers have struggled to reconcile this leitmotif with the book's mention of a skin of blackness that was set upon some of Lehi's descendants. Earlier apologetics for that mark have been rooted in old world texts and traditions, However, within the last 20 years, Mesoamerican archaeologists, anthropologists, and ethno-historians have curated and interpreted artifacts that reveal an ancient Maya body paint tradition, chiefly for warfare, hunting, and nocturnal raiding. This discovery shifts possible explanations from the Old World to the New and suggests that any mark upon Book of Mormon people may have been self-applied. It also challenges arguments that the book demonstrates racism in either 600 BCE or the early 19th century. In approximately 600 BCE, a Jewish patriarch named Lehi and his wife Sariah led their four sons away from Jerusalem to escape the impending Babylonian conquest. After gathering a few others, the caravan traveled in a south-southeast direction in the wilderness near the Red Sea. Before leaving the land of Jerusalem, Nephi, who was the youngest son, obtained a set of priceless brass plates from the treasury of a Jewish nobleman through an inspired and bold ruse. Those plates preserved the writings of Hebrew prophets, including the Pentateuch and prophecies of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. Eventually, these Lehites constructed and provisioned a ship and sailed to the New World, Shortly after they arrived, Lehi and his wife died, and their two oldest sons, Laman and Lemuel, plotted to kill their younger brothers so that they could rule the clan. Being forewarned, Nephi fled into the wilderness with his own family and other followers who became known as Nephites. Faced with the task of starting over from scratch, Nephi took with them whatsoever things were possible. This included seeds, animals, tools, and religious relics, including the irreplaceable brass plates. Long before this family schism, the two eldest sons had rejected their father's messianic faith, believing him to be a fanatic who had turned against the political and religious leaders in Jerusalem and improvidently sacrificed their legacy of land and possessions. Their conflict may have been related to theology, but seems to have been fueled primarily by suspicion and jealousy. They were convinced that Nephi had used cunning arts to deceive them, and that he coveted leadership. Therefore, when Nephi and his followers fled from their settlement, Laman and Lemuel were furious, to the point that Nephi feared that they would attempt to destroy him and his people. From then on, Laman and Lemuel taught their followers, the Lamanites, that Nephi had robbed them and had wronged them in other ways. 
Their hatred of the Nephites soon led to wars and conflict that lasted for generations. Lehi had believed in and taught his children repentance, mercy, and forgiveness, as well as inclusivity. Before leaving Jerusalem, his first heavenly vision led him to exclaim that God's power and goodness and mercy are over all the inhabitants of the earth. This universalistic point of view resounds throughout Lehi's teachings and, indeed, the entire Book of Mormon. Nephi prepared a history of his people, including an account of two specific events at the time of the split that may have negatively influenced Latter-day Saint presuppositions about people of color. First, he said, that the Nephites fell under what Hebrews traditionally viewed as a cursing, that is to say, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Second, according to Nephi, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. These words, in a book that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints accepts as having been translated by the gift and power of God, may shock readers who come to the Book of Mormon to learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Drawing upon his own personal missionary experience, Patrick Mason poignantly reminds us how these words can offend and altogether discourage readers, particularly people of color. Those who are willing to read further sometimes do so under the ominous spell of the skin of blackness and the curse. Without a rational explanation, and the text itself does not offer one, these words become barriers to entry. The issue is not merely academic, especially for indigenous Americans, African Americans, and Africans. In 2001, while I was serving as the mission president for Côte d'Ivoire, Togo, Benin, Cameroon, and the Central African Republic, or Centrafrique. My wife Judy and I confronted this issue personally. We recall our first zone leader conference in Abidjan. I had just opened the floor to questions when a sincere African elder asked me what color of skin he would have in the resurrection. He was worried that his blackness limited his opportunities in the church and in eternity and that he and his African companions needed to become whiter in order to be the lightsome. We sought to reassure our missionaries that our diverse complexions were beautiful, that they proved God's love for individuality, that they were not determined by the righteousness of ancestors, and that they had no bearing on mortal or eternal potential. A few months later, our African and North American office elders brought us five pages of shameful, racist statements by early church leaders that someone had discovered on the Internet and used to confront our missionaries. Copies were beginning to be circulated. We empathized with our faithful sisters and elders and collectively felt the sting of 19th and 20th century bigotry. We spoke to them candidly about past prejudice reassured them of God's respect for diversity, inclusion, and equality, and prayed that they would forgive former church leaders. Their magnanimous grace allowed our missionary efforts to progress. To date, there are no reliable facts from which to conclude that the words skin of blackness and mark are euphemisms for the creation of a race as we use that term today a group of humans with distinguishing 
phenotypic features, including complexion. We do not know why Nephi chose these words, how Joseph Smith understood them, or whether in the process of translation they came to Joseph as merely the best words to use under the circumstances, even though they might be misunderstood. It may well be that any racial inference results from inherited social biases of readers, those same biases that led colonial America to tolerate slavery. Nonetheless, because today the words seem offensive, some church members have relied upon these words as racial generalizations, even though some disciple scholars contend that they are mere tropes with a metaphorical meaning. This article offers new insights based on recent interpretations of Mesoamerican artifacts that shed light on these words and how they may have been misunderstood. Beginning in the 1850s, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints denied black women and men of African descent the right to participate in its temple ordinances and ceased ordaining these men to its priesthood. At that time, American Protestants were predisposed to read racism into the Hebrew Scriptures, Southerners especially elevated slavery to the status of the literal word of God. This undoubtedly influenced the early Utah saints who fell in line with predominant American attitudes and practices concerning race. The Utah saints also found support for their priesthood and temple ban in their so-called scriptural proof texts, chiefly Joseph Smith's prophetic translation of ancient papyri known as the Book of Abraham. Terrell Givens says, Catastrophically, for the development of church policy, the book of Abraham was interpreted to convey cursedness as the fruit of past conduct in the case of the black race. Antebellum Americans had for some time been reading the curse of Ham, Canaan's father, as a divine warrant for slavery. Passages in the book of Abraham were read into this preformed context. During his lifetime, however, Joseph Smith demonstrated a remarkable respect for diversity, inclusiveness, and equality. Joseph never commented on the Abraham text or implied it denied priesthood to blacks. The book of Abraham was not elevated to the status of scripture until 1880, when the saints were in the West. Furthermore, the Utah church never officially relied on the Book of Mormon to explain its priesthood and temple restrictions. But in the mid-1800s, race relations with both African Americans and indigenous Americans was a contemporary issue of both local and national import. Therefore, it is no surprise that early Utah saints came to view the Book of Mormon as the tale of two races and blamed the non-Christian culture of America's indigenous people for their somewhat darker complexion. In June of 1978, the Church made its priesthood and temple ordinances available to all worthy members, without regard for race or color. Since then, it officially has denounced any causal link between the curse upon the Lamanites and the mark or skin of blackness. It has condemned all racism, past or present, in any form, and it has dis disavowed any theory that black or dark skin is a sign of a curse. According to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Church's Quorum of Twelve Apostles, any theories that Latter-day Saints conjured up previously to explain the prior racial restrictions are folklore that must never be perpetuated. 
Other influential Christian denominations that once tolerated racial bias also have issued forceful expressions of regret. Nevertheless, some analytical thinkers continue to question whether Book of Mormon references to the mark and skin of blackness reveal an inherent color code in the church's keystone canon. They may ask how the church in good faith can repudiate all past racism while at the same time revere prophets who, from 600 BCE to 421 CE, occasionally wrote words that now sound pejorative and that for generations have triggered assumptions about race and skin color. Some critics go further and argue that the text is a byproduct of the early 1800s with a racial subplot that supports the historicist explanation for the Book of Mormon. They claim that Joseph Smith absorbed theories, images, and biases from upstate New York's rural culture, wrote them into the Book of Mormon, and that the entire text has an early 19th century racial agenda. For them, the book is not ancient scripture. It is modern, man-made, and white-privileged. In defense, Latter-day Saint scholars have argued that the Book of Mormon, at its core, is an unrelenting attack on elitism of every kind. Recently, David Belknap has shown that its prophets repeatedly denounced pride and discrimination, whether based on lineage, gender, education, social class, economic status, religious orthodoxy, or otherwise. With encyclopedic precision, he has demonstrated the consistency of Lehi's universalistic and inclusive declaration in the book's first chapter, that God's mercy is for all the inhabitants of the earth. He has collated hundreds of egalitarian messages in thousands of the book's verses, confirming that Lehi's preamble was not a pretext. The specific accusation of racism in the Book of Mormon deserves an explicit response, one that is buttressed with facts, ideally from the New World. When analyzing such a vexing question, contemporary American philosopher John Cyril urges a search for reliable, hard evidence. Cyril says, Forget about the history of a problem. Start with what you know for a fact. And remember that any theory has to be consistent with the facts. Joseph Smith would not have shied away from that challenge. On one occasion, for example, he referred to the discovery of ruins in Central America by Stevens and Catherwood as evidence of a mighty Nephite and Lamanite civilization in the Americas. Joseph then said, Facts are stubborn things, and the world will prove Joseph Smith a true prophet by circumstantial evidence. Unfortunately, some Latter-day Saints have encouraged a biracial interpretation of the Book of Mormon by selectively using archaeological myths in proselytizing and teaching. For example, Latter-day Saints have pointed to Maya murals at Benampak, circa 800 CE, and Chichen Itza, circa 1100 CE, as evidence of white Nephites and darker Lamanites. However, relying on these murals to support a biracial Book of Mormon is risky. Quote, playing the long shots, close quote, is how anthropologist John Sorensen describes this, attempting to prove the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon with limited fieldwork, a few dates and places, and a lot of speculation. 
Demythicizing the skin of blackness requires more than that. It depends on spade and trowel archaeology and expert knowledge of Mesoamerican circumstances that correlate with Book of Mormon events, cultural insights about the mark in an original New World setting. Until recently, however, New World facts regarding the skin of blackness have been in short supply. The burgeoning knowledge of ancient Mesoamerica is changing that. It allows us to consider whether a now-proven Mesoamerican cultural tradition harmonizes with the Book of Mormon. Relatively recent findings support a novel, promising, and fact-based explanation for the skin of blackness, the ancient Maya tradition of darkening the skin with charcoal-based body paint and stains. The hard evidence includes codices, murals, and polychrome earthenware vases and plates. This is illustrated in the detail of a Bonampak mural displayed in Sorensen's Images of Ancient America, where it appears that there is dark paint on the faces of two men in a ceremonial procession. Scholars Brant Gardner and Mark Wright already have suggested that the pigmentation variances shown in Maya murals might be the result of the practice of painting the skin. To date, however, Latter-day Saint disciple scholars have not methodically addressed the Mesoamerican body paint artifacts and the opinions of America's leading Mayanists, who see them as evidence of a mark upon the skin that was utilitarian, episodic, artificial, and removable. According to its title page, the Book of Mormon's raison d'etre is to testify of the atonement of Jesus Christ. To that end, it offers unique theological insights beyond the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. It emphasizes the universality of Christ's mercy and power of deliverance with words like these, All men are privileged, the one like unto the other. The Lord invites all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. All are alike unto God, and he denieth none that come unto him black and white, bond and free, male and female. The Mark, or Skin of Blackness Nephi, the Book of Mormon's first scribe, engraved religious teachings and history on two sets of metal plates, his so-called large plates and small plates. Each tome had a particular purpose, and each introduced a unique descriptor of the Lamanite's physical appearance. It is worth considering which came first and how they differ. Nephi first worked on his large plates and began by abridging Lehi's engravings in order to provide a full account of the history of his people, including their kings, wars, and contentions. After several years, he felt inspired, even commanded, to create a separate set of plates, the small plates, to persuade men to come unto God and to record the ministry of his people. Centuries later, Mormon abridged the large plates in order to create his own volume, the Plates of Mormon, that became the principal source for the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith began his translation with Mormon's abridgment of Nephi's more comprehensive large plates and referred to the earliest chapters of his translation as the Record or Book of Lehi. Book of Mormon scholars Reynolds and Sodal concluded that the book of Lehi contained the original account of events related to the family schism after Lehi's death, 
including the most complete version of the prophecy related to the Lamanite's appearance. Perhaps a word-for-word -word quotation. Taking the book of Lehi as the source for Mormon's summary of early Nephite history, the book of Lehi thus may have spoken of a mark that was set upon about a dozen adults, Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, a Jerusalem Jew who had joined Lehi's pilgrimage, but who died in the Arabian wilderness before the voyage to the Americas, and these men's wives, whom Mormon referred to as Ishmaelitish women. Mormon's redaction of the information on Nephi's large plates may have preserved the most authentic version of the prophecy and the original use of the term mark. Reynolds and Sodal also concluded that it was 10 to 15 years later before Nephi created his small plates in which he introduced the term skin of blackness. The Book of Mormon includes those words today because Mormon appended Nephi's small plates to his own abridged record. In 1828, through the misadventure of Martin Harris, Joseph Smith's scribe, 116 pages of the translation were lost, including the Book of Lehi. However, after Joseph had finished translating the remainder of Mormon's plates, he learned that Nephi's small plates that were attached behind them reported significant events and prophetic teachings from the same period. Therefore, to recover the essence of the missing text, Joseph translated the small plates and inserted them where they fit chronologically. Text that was originally in the book of Lehi is now part of Alma 3, 14-17. There, Mormon repeated the prophecy that a mark would be set upon both Lamanites and their allies and cited an example of the prophecy's fulfillment. Describing a battle in 87 BCE, he explained that Lamanite allies had, quote, marked themselves, close quote, and that they had done this, quote, after the manner of the Lamanites, close quote, but with, quote, red in their foreheads. Mormon repeatedly used the term mark in his abridgment of Nephi's large plate. So mark also may have been Nephi's preferred term. Because Joseph inserted his translation of the small plates at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, readers are not introduced first to the term mark. Instead, their earliest impression of the Lamanites' appearance after the family rift comes from the text's mention of a skin of blackness. This term's position of primacy can influence how readers in their mind's eye see the Lamanites and may lead to the assumption that Lamanites were punished with a black skin that covered their bodies male and female, young and old, and from head to toe. For people of color and many others, this is a stumbling block. However, it does not appear that Mormon, as the editor-in-chief, ever engraved the phrase, quote, skin of blackness, because 116 pages of text taken from Nephi's large plates were lost. We cannot be sure. But the distinctive phrase, skin of blackness, occurs only once in the published text in 2 Nephi 5.21, and it appears to be an alternative that Nephi employed just once for the word mark, when he paraphrased and incorporated the prophecy from the book of Lehi on his large plates. One must wonder whether common perceptions about the Lamanites would be different if readers first were introduced to the original account of the prophecy and to the Amlicites, who intentionally, quote, marked themselves after the manner of the Lamanites, 
close quote, rather than to Nephi's abbreviated account of Laman and Lemuel having a, quote, skin of blackness, close quote, set upon them. This article considers previous scholarly research and introduces a mark and a skin of blackness that are based on Mesoamerican artifacts and opinions of Mayanists. It details the ancient cultural roles of temporary body paint as part of a young man's rite of passage, a woman's body decor, and a man's ceremonial accoutrement and camouflage for warfare, hunting, and plunder. It then tests the common assumption that the Lamanites' complexion was in fact darkened after the schism, miraculously or naturally. In its search for an objective, neutral, and fact-based explanation for the skin of blackness, it invites readers to consider how the Mesoamerican tradition harmonizes reason, science, and the theology of the Book of Mormon. Perceptions and Misperceptions The source of racist accusations against the Book of Mormon is the assumption that God caused a skin of blackness to come upon Lamanites as a mark of divine disfavor. The problem is compounded by the proximity of the text's references to the Lamanites' physical appearance and its descriptions of a curse. All of these words are enigmatic, however. None of them has a plain meaning. They should be only the beginning of the inquiry. They challenge readers to question the text, to reconsider their own biases, and to search for verifiable facts. To begin with, the phrase skin of blackness is unusual. The word skin does not a priori refer to human flesh. It can also be used to describe various thin external coatings that are put upon a surface or could refer to animal skins. The word blackness also is obscure and unconventional in this context, especially since in the 1830s, indigenous Americans were generally portrayed as red men. Therefore, the term skin of blackness could describe a dark paint or other thin covering of the body, or a stain that affects only the epidermis, regardless of the underlying natural complexion. Nephi was almost certainly acquainted with Ethiopians, since one of them had risen to prominence in the court of Zedekiah. The term he chose may have been meant to distinguish between an artificial covering or stain and natural black skin. The text describes the mark as dark only twice, and it rarely mentions human skin, whatever the color. In most encounters between Lamanites and Nephites, there is no mention of any discernible difference in complexion. Within just a few years after Lehi's death and the schism, Nephi's younger brother referred to the, quote, darkness, close quote, of the Lamanite skins, but it was almost five centuries later before their appearance again was mentioned this time linked with the red mark upon the foreheads of the Amlicites. After that, a century of silence passed until 15 CE, when Mormon, without implicating divine intervention, reported that the Lamanites' skins became white when they united with the Nephites. Although Mormon's book continues for another four centuries, this is the final reference to complexion. Therefore, it is hardly necessary to assume the existence of darkened flesh or a dark mark in all Nephite-Lamanite interactions. Quite possibly, the phrase skin of blackness describes the Lamanites' stunning change in appearance only when Lehi's family fractured. An omission such as this can be eloquent. 
At the very least, it furthers the argument that the Lamanites, like the Maya, may have blackened themselves episodically. Given the book's many cross-cultural encounters between Lehi's descendants, the silence crescendos if, in fact, there had been a dramatic genetic darkening of the Lamanite skin. Furthermore, the word mark is vague. Linguistically, it does not suggest a genetic makeover or phenotypical change. It is commonly thought of as an external effect, like the red mark in the foreheads of the Lamanite allies. Indeed, Mormon repeatedly refers to it as being set upon someone. Nevertheless, as Brant Gardner notes, it is much easier to compile a list of writers who take the phrase skin of blackness literally than of those who suggest an alternate reading. Thus, reinforced by nearly two centuries of tradition, most readers still visualize the Lamanites as having a darkened natural complexion. John Sorensen does not agree that the Lamanites had different phenotypical features than the Nephites. With nuanced words, he concedes that the text implies that the Nephites' rivals, at least as seen by Nephite eyes, exhibited a skin of darkness or even blackness. However, based upon his research, Sorensen says that both factions of Lehi's descendants may have shown but relatively minor variations from the bodily norms of their Mediterranean-type ancestors, who not uncommonly featured copper-olive skins. He concludes that it is unlikely that the mark or curse had anything to do with pigmentation. Carrie Hull, a respected Latter-day Saint Mayanist, finds absolutely no justification in the text for thinking that actual skin pigmentation plays any role in Book of Mormon society. None. For some devout Latter-day Saints, the words, quote, the Lord did cause, close quote, are a test of faith. They seem to demand that God miraculously altered the Lamanites' complexion. That point of view relies on conflating the skin of blackness with the curse of being cut off from the presence of the Lord that Nephi, shortly after departing from Jerusalem, prophesied would come upon his two eldest brothers in that day when they rebelled against him. The question of whether skin color and a curse are linked resurfaces six centuries later when Lamanites united with Nephites for their safety and, according to Mormon, the Lamanites' skin became white like unto the Nephites. Some skeptics question whether the Book of Mormon necessarily requires these suspected metamorphoses to be supernatural events that seem to contradict reason, science, and the doctrine of free agency. Concerns about all of these elusive words are compounded by descriptions of how the mark was applied. Mormon said that the words of Nephi's original prophecy, apparently taken from Nephi's large plates, used the term set on or set upon to describe the process. On his small plates, Nephi says that the skin of blackness did come upon them. Sorensen, again with carefully chosen words, notes that the text says nothing about the mechanism that might have produced a change. Nephi's words could refer to a variety of processes. They do not imply a genetic mutation. Apologists and Critics It would be disingenuous and shameful to minimize or attempt to hide racial bias in the Book of Mormon, if it were there. 
Consequently, in a tribute to transparency, a few Latter-day Saint scholars have begun to concede that the Book of Mormon exhibits what would be considered racism today. Some of them contend that Book of Mormon prophets may have described racism, but that they should be forgiven because it was part of their culture and they never prescribed it. So, with the best of intentions, some scholars seek to appease critical thinkers by pointing out that the most inspirational events in the Book of Mormon occurred when two previously hostile cultures united in their faith and lived together in peace for almost two centuries. This, they say, emphasizes the book's ultimate moral lesson, its redeeming social value, that prejudice, including racial bias, can be overcome, and that religion can lead believers toward a higher, more just, and compassionate perspective. Going further, Jared Hickman sees the Book of Mormon as a voice of warning because it ends as a racial apocalypse and exposes the tragic consequence of racism, the annihilation of the racist culture. This reflects our growing sense of social justice and desire to learn whatever we, good we can from an allegedly intolerant text, but it also tends to normalize racism in what Latter-day Saints revere as the Word of God. Transparency also demands that racial bias of the book's translator be disclosed, if it existed. Joseph Smith was not perfect, nor did he claim to be. Could he have absorbed and echoed the racism that was prevalent in his day, as one historian recently wrote? The evidence is thin. One Book of Mormon critic portrays the text as an ongoing racial conflict, Max Perry Mueller's historical research has raised legitimate questions about the tense and often hurtful relationship between Latter-day Saints and people of color based on pronouncements by church leaders that first gained official traction in the 1850s after the death of Joseph Smith. But Mueller's scholarship falters when he theorizes that the root cause is a racial subplot in the Book of Mormon. His hypothesis is that Joseph, even in his early twenties, had a racial agenda conceived of whiteness as an aspirational identity, which even those cursed with blackness can achieve, and preached white universalism through the voices of Nephite prophets within a story that is dominated by cultural divisions that were often manifested as racial divisions. He contends that the book treats race as mutable, based on faith and righteousness, and that it shows that both Racial progress toward whiteness and declension are possible. The thought that relevant New World evidence might exist seems never to have crossed Mueller's mind. For him, quote, there is no archaeological evidence that matches the pre-Columbian civilization that the Book of Mormon describes, close quote. Mueller's recent reiteration of the old race-based attack on the Book of Mormon confirms that faith-based scholarly apologetics have not yet satisfied detractors, nor have they eradicated the persistent assumption that the darker skin of sub-Saharan Africans and indigenous Americans somehow reflects the unrighteousness of their progenitors. As noted earlier, that perception with respect to Africans was part of Western culture for centuries. As for indigenous Americans, some early Latter-day Saints were biased by references to a curse and skin of blackness in 2 Nephi 5.21, 1 
even though Joseph never explained that verse. It is a fact that in the 1830s, wholesale genocide of American Indians was preached and practiced. Therefore, bias against indigenous Americans and Africans influenced many of Joseph Smith's contemporaries. But not Joseph. He saw things differently and acted differently. One theory for the skin of blackness argues that it was an authoritative garment made of animal skin, a self-administered, removable, and inherited vestment that is reminiscent of religiously significant clothing in the Hebrew Scriptures. This theory is premised on the fact that nothing in the Book of Mormon, positively or unambiguously, indicates that colored skins refer to human flesh pigmentation. That premise is true. So the skins as garments theory confronts the alleged racist inferences. But this theory does so only with old world facts. It fails to consider the new world facts discussed shortly, and it is difficult to reconcile with the actual text. Professor Hugh Nibley was intrigued by possible natural environmental explanations for a rapid and reversible catalyst. He considered adaptation and segregation, which he believed under unique circumstances could cause darkening to occur very fast. However, he recognized that when Mormons said that the Amlicites intentionally had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites, Mormon was describing a process and that the Lamanites put the marks on themselves, not knowing that they were fulfilling the promise of the Lord that he would mark them. Per Nibley, when the Amlicites did it themselves, then they fulfilled the prophecy. Nibley's bottom line was this. It is a reversible process. It's their choice. They control it. Thus, he directly challenged exclusively metaphorical explanations for a skin of blackness, whether in the Book of Mormon or in the Hebrew Scriptures. Unlike Nephi, whose small plates portrayed the skin of blackness as an act of divine providence, Nibley surmised that the mark was a process so natural and human that it suggested nothing miraculous to the ordinary observer. Nibley's focus on choice invites consideration of a Mesoamerican tradition now confirmed by archaeologists, anthropologists, and ethnohistorians. During his lifetime, Nibley did not know of this custom, or at least he never mentioned it. However, he was constantly searching for new facts. Nibley frequently lamented how perfectly obvious something should have been to him and to others, but that nobody took notice. He also anticipated a time when the findings of the people who study Central America could bring about a shift in thinking. Quote, at any moment, close quote, he said, quote, something might turn up, and often does, to require a complete reversal of established views. Quote. The Mesoamerican Facts Officially, the Church takes no position on the specific geographic location of Book of Mormon events in ancient America. There are various theories. Recently, so-called heartlanders have made this a lively debate. However, many scholars believe that Lehi's descendants inhabited Mesoamerica. Kirk Magleby maintained that Joseph Smith advocated a Mesoamerican setting after he read about the exploratory work of Stevens and Catherwood 
in incidents of travel in Central America, Chiapas, and Yucatan. In 1957, Hugh Nibley stated, It is our conviction that proof of the Book of Mormon does lie in Central America. Recently, Terrell Givens described John Sorensen's Mormon's Codex as comprehensive and compelling evidence for a Mesoamerican locus. The Maya preceded Lehi's arrival in 590 BCE, and their cultural supremacy in Mesoamerica bookends all recorded Nephite and Lamanite history. The Maya flourished from as early as the 2nd or 3rd millennium BCE until the Spanish conquest. After 1000 BCE, their culture gradually expanded in the region, especially from approximately 300 BCE until 250 BCE, when the late pre-classic period ended. Their apex, or classic period, lasted until 900 CE. Lehi and his refugees disembarked upon a continent that already was densely populated. Mesoamerica was a melting pot with not only the Maya, but a wide variety of ethnic or racial types, some of them with natural complexions that were darker than the Lehites. Sorensen cites the work of González Calderón, who on the basis of his direct observation of thousands of figurines from Olmec sites in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, San Lorenzo, Tenochtitlan, and nearby La Venta, has identified faces that show three distinct racial ethnic groups. 1. A bearded white race with aquiline noses, probably Mediterranean or in origin. 2. An oriental race, probably Han Chinese and three, a black race. Hugh Nibley stated that there is not a word in the Book of Mormon to prevent the coming to the Western Hemisphere of any number of people from any part of the world at any time. According to Richard D. Hansen, one of the leading field archaeologists currently working in Mesoamerica, when Lehi arrived in the New World, and even after many generations, his descendants may have been inconsequential in number among the millions of people already there. Anywhere in the Americas, Lehi's colony would have been surrounded by competing cultures, with the Maya the most dominant. Warfare was endemic in Mesoamerica. Hansen has used LIDAR technology in the Mirador Basin of Guatemala to locate ancient Maya watchtowers, ramparts, and moat-like trenches. His findings agree with those of other archaeologists that warfare in the Maya civilization was large-scale and systematic, and it endured over many years. In the late 1820s, Joseph Smith had no reason to think that America's indigenous people engaged in nearly continual combat on such a scale. Yet the Book of Mormon mentions similar defensive infrastructure and conflict that is almost perpetual. It also colorizes the drama on the battlefields with a skin of blackness, a red mark on foreheads, and loincloths dyed in blood. Analyzing the mark referred to in the Book of Mormon should start with the fact that Lehi's descendants inhabited a greatly restricted geographical area and always were surrounded by a vast, influential, militarized population. In Mesoamerica, the Maya would have exerted a powerful external effect upon immigrants. Admittedly, neighboring tribes and ethnic groups do not automatically adopt each other's customs. However, 
Hegemony often leads to cultural diffusion of successful traditions. Mormon, for example, reported that Lamanites copied superior Nephite military tactics. John Sorensen is the preeminent discoverer of cultural markers that Book of Mormon people shared with ancient Mesoamericans, for which he coined the term Mesoamericanisms. Independent evidence now suggests that body paint can be added to the list. Leading Mayanists now have curated, vetted, examined, and interpreted an impressive collection of proofs of the ancient Maya skin blackening tradition. Black body paint would not have been ideal for farming or other outdoor labor in a sun-drenched climate, but the experts unanimously agree that the Maya darkened their skins with paints, stains, and pigments for ceremonial purposes and as camouflage for warfare, hunting, and plunder. The artifacts shown later in this paper persuasively demonstrate that male torsos were blackened, while men's faces, hands, and feet often were not. Images of women, though rare, exhibit the decorative use of stains. After the Spanish conquest of Central America, Franciscan friars were the first to mention body paint. Sylvanus Morley's classic, The Ancient Maya, states that Bishop Diego de Landa, who arrived in the Yucatan in 1549, observed that following a puberty ceremony, unmarried men began to live in a house set apart for them and painted themselves black until they were married. Warriors, Landa said, painted themselves black and red and painted their prisoners in black and white stripes, reminiscent of some prison uniforms today. Michael Coe, one of America's foremost Mayanists, confirmed these ancient rituals, stating that young men stayed apart from their families in special communal houses where they presumably learned the arts of war, and until marriage, they painted themselves black. Coe concluded that Maya warriors artificially and intentionally painted themselves black at all times. They also applied paint around the eyes and nose to give a fierce expression. Maya art flowered during the first millennia of the Christian era, Mesoamerica's late pre-classic and classic period, as Maya artisans began to produce murals and polychrome earthenware of lasting quality. Thus, surviving artifacts that display body paint post-date Lehi's arrival, and therefore, chronologically speaking, Book of Mormon references to marks of black and red upon skins may be the earliest record of this practice. However, no one disputes that the Maya tradition originated much earlier. Effective strategies of dominant ancient societies have a long lifespan, absent abrupt environmental changes or a conquest. Artifacts confirm the enduring multi-generational body paint custom throughout the Maya realm. The Maya also employed scarification, cicatrization, the process of wound healing, branding, piercing, stretching, and tattooing. Their body painting, however, was unique. It was impermanent. They could use it when needed and remove it at will. They could alter their appearance relatively quickly for hunting or for a military campaign and touch up their black formal wear for a ceremonial occasion. Skin color rites of passage are not unique to the Maya. Ethnophotographers Carol Beckwith and Angela Fisher document similar ceremonies in Africa, but with the color selection reversed. 
During the Maasai coming-of-age ritual, young men go to a sacred chalk bank. There they paint their bodies with white designs that convey a significant social message about their manhood. The initiated warriors then return to their village where they believe that their mothers will not recognize them since they have metaphorically moved into the next stage of life. Stephen Houston, who is renowned for his research into pre-Columbia Maya civilization, has cataloged Mayan words for the body paint custom. These include naban, meaning to paint oneself in the colonial Tutsil dialect, nabi, in Cholti, for stain, nab, in Yucatec, for anoint, smear, spot, and in Sendal, nabel, for makeup, and nabantazan, meaning to makeup, beautify with colors, and daub with ochre. In colonial Yucatec, hots itch meant to work on oneself as the Indians did anciently. Maya body paint may have involved a common term for pigment, bon in Yucatec. In battle, the common Maya soldier fought with little clothing other than a loincloth and body paint, which he applied before going to war. The paint allowed warriors, from a distance and up close, instantly to recognize friends and foes, a significant tactical advantage prior to the widespread development of textiles, thick clothing, and body armor. In the fog of war, and especially in hand-to-hand -hand combat, paint was a protective mark. Lamanite warriors, who were, quote, naked, save it were skin which was girded about their loins, close quote, may have darkened their flesh for the same tactical purposes and to appear fierce and intimidating. Fascinating details about this tradition are revealed in a mural at Huactun in northern Guatemala, inhabited between 300 BCE and 900 CE. According to Mayanists Coe and Houston, figure one depicts a Maya personage who is painted in black, except for his hands and feet, and is greeting a visitor who is costumed as a Teotihuacan warrior. Both are wearing loincloths. According to these scholars, the three, quote, noble ladies, close quote, seated nearby are displaying their body paint. They suggest that face painting on females may have been seen as alluring. Initially, Nephi perceived that the skin of blackness, which may have been soot and charcoal at that time, would prevent his people from being enticed by Lamanites, who were exceedingly fair and delightsome. However, the flattering cosmetic decor upon the women in this mural illustrates how later an artistic application of stains may have enhanced their natural beauty. Figure 2 shows additional detail from the same mural. It depicts two men wearing elaborate ceremonial garments about their loins. The upper torso of one is blackened. Figure 3 is a ceramic Maya funerary plate from Mesoamerica's early late classic period. It confirms that Maya military leaders, perhaps Lamanite captains as well, may have been resplendent on the battlefield. This leader's ceremonial attire distinguishes him, but in solidarity with his warriors, his body is blackened, except for his hands, feet, and face. Blackening is depicted on numerous cylindrical vases in Justin Kerr's impressive collection of photographs of Maya artifacts. Mayanists associate the scene in figure four with the ruler Sak Muan 
who reigned sometime between 700 and 726 CE, as the divine lord in the lowlands of Guatemala. The vase shows a ruler whose skin is darkened except for his face, shoulders, and hands. It is believed to have been a drinking vessel of the son of Sakmuan, whose name paradoxically translates as White Bird, ruler of Motul de San Jose. Justin Kerr's rollout view in figure five shows four figures whose body paint is similar, the ruler and his three court attendants on the left. The person on the right, who appears to be making an offering, is not blackened. Experts still find it nearly impossible to understand semantically Maya body paint patterns. It is unknown how often various colors or designs were used to distinguish different roles or to define special moments. However, in ceremonial situations, men's faces, hands, and feet usually were left au naturel. Hunting involved more variety, as shown in the following rollout view of a deer hunting scene on a Maya vase. The hunter's designs, however, all had one obvious purpose. Each of them used black paint as a form of camouflage for stealth, so that the human body could thereby not be easily distinguished from the mottled light and color under the jungle canopy. Black handprints, a primitive art form, were set upon hunters as well as warriors to conceal them in the shadows and forest greenery. It seems logical that Lamanites as well as Nephites would have relied on similar disguise when hunting, as do hunters today. By the way, it was no coincidence that the markings evident in figures 6 and 7 mimicked the jaguar, the largest of the world's spotted cats and the most feared predator in Mesoamerica. Body paint and stains facilitated thievery and plunder, a common practice among the Maya. The Book of Mormon reports that some Lamanites sought riches by plundering, and that they were a very cunning people, delighting in plunder. Nephites likewise engaged in plundering and stealing. Body paint and stains would have concealed any of Lehi's descendants when pillaging from the Maya or their own extended family. Bishop Delanda observed that black and red were the primary colors of the ancient Maya body paint palette. This corroborates the Book of Mormon's lexicon of colors associated with conflict. Indeed, these are the only colors that Nephite prophets mentioned, except for white and one reference to gray hair. They employed color with great restraint. Among the Maya, the first quantum leap in color complexity did not come until after about 300 BCE. The diffusion and longevity of the blackening tradition are proven by the fact that the Aztec observed the custom after the Maya culture declined and long after Book of Mormon times. Young Aztec men received extensive training in martial arts at a school known as the Tepochcali, which literally translates as youth house, where at sunset they bathed and painted their bodies black. Courageous warriors painted their bodies black, and painted their face with black stripes on which they sprinkled iron pyrite. Undistinguished warriors wore only body paint and a loincloth. The Mistec culture flourished alongside the Aztec. A colorful Mistec manuscript known as Codex Vidobonensis Mexicanus I corroborates the duration and widespread acceptance of Mesoamerican body painting while also illustrating its artistic evolution. 
figure eight, a leaf from that codex, shows a painted soldier carrying a weapon on each side of the tree of Apuala. Both warriors wear a skin of blackness that mimics the Maya. They are surrounded by men engaged in various activities, painted in diverse colors and patterns. The enlarged detail in figure nine is particularly striking. It reveals that the tree of Apuala is womb-shaped and is in fact a light-skinned female with her head to the ground. From her birth canal, a young warrior emerges whose body already is painted, except for his face, feet, and hands. For the Mistec, childbirth was a female brand of war. So as this woman experienced labor, she earned the respect due a combatant. For females and males alike, the reward was the same if they died in the process they gained entrance to the celestial paradise of the sun. The composition of ancient Mesoamerican paints has not been fully verified. For black, the Maya mainly used carbon produced by burning resinous wood or insects and scorpions. Residues of these organic materials could be removed with water. However, when mixed with resins, they became a coating that stayed put on a sweaty body. In contrast, skin staining relied on plant-based pigments and extracts. For example, the huito plant, Genipa americana, grows naturally in the region's tropical forests and has been used for skin blackening by many indigenous tribes. When the juice of its unripe fruit reacts with the human skin and oxidizes, it stains the skin black but darkens only the top layers, so it is temporary. Without additional applications, it fades within a few weeks. The juice of Genipa also has been used in native tropical medicine. Due to its insect-repellent properties, it may be helpful in malaria prophylaxis. It could have been one of the plants that, according to Mormon, removed the cause of the fevers, which at some seasons of the year were very frequent. Thus, charcoal-based body paint may have been used episodically for battle, for stocking game, and for looting, while pigment stains would have facilitated a prolonged military campaign as well as intricate and eye-catching body decor for women. The Maya also applied paints and stains for social messaging. Colors and patterns became communiques that could be erased and replaced. This allowed individuals and groups to express social values and to use their skin as a painting surface like any other to be wiped clean for other future displays. This purpose also would have been well suited to the Lamanites' lifestyle. Their women may have used paint and stains to beautify themselves for special occasions or for courtship and marriage rituals. For men, the custom could have emphasized their social roles, demonstrated their rejection of Hebrew traditions, or signaled to the Maya that they were allies, just as the Amlicites marked their foreheads to denote their allegiance. In short, the Lamanites' mark or skin of blackness may have been nothing more than body paint and stains with practical, tactical, and ritual significance. Testing the cogency of this explanation, however, requires further consideration of the following. The timing and circumstances of the mark's origin, the ancient cursing tradition, and the curses pronounced by Lehi, the meaning of the words, the Lord did cause, the Lamanite marriage taboo, 
and Nephite concerns about exogamy. The nature of miracles, the fundamentals of human genetics, and the Latter-day Saint doctrine of moral agency. It will then be time to consider how the Mesoamerican evidence and these topics resonate with previous metaphorical arguments for the skin of blackness and with the text of the Book of Mormon. The Origin of the Mark Depending on a reader's assumptions about the mark, it can be easy to miss clues in the text regarding its timing. Some see the mark as a sudden change that fulfilled the inspired prophecy that Nephi first received when his eldest brothers began murmuring when Lehi offered sacrifices in the wilderness. In response to their complaints, Lehi rebuked them with power, being filled with the Spirit until their frames did shake before him. But Nephi seems to have foreseen that their grumbling would lead to worse. In response, the Lord comforted Nephi with the words of a prophecy. The prophecy did not mention skin, blackness, or a mark, but rather warned that Laman and Lemuel would be cursed in that day that they shall rebel against Nephi. It also consoled Nephi by foretelling the results. Laman and Lemuel would be cut off from the presence of the Lord. Nephi would be made a ruler and a teacher over them, and Laman and Lemuel would have no power over Nephi and his people unless they also rebelled against God. Nephi observed these consequences time and again, even before Lehi's family arrived in the Americas. Other readers theorize that the Lamanites experienced a gradual pigmentation change over a period of time. However, according to the text, darkened skin did not show up first in Lamanite offspring decades after the schism. When Nephi said on his small plates that the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them, he was referring to his eldest brethren, Laman and Lemuel. Mormon's more expansive account, presumably taken from the earlier book of Lehi, added that the mark was set upon Laman and Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, and also the Ishmaelitish women. When the mark is first mentioned, these pioneer Lamanites had children, including teenagers and young adults. Curiously, however, as far as we can tell, the blackening affected only the Lamanites' founding mothers and fathers. In short, it did not take generations or even years for the mark to appear. The words of Nephi and Mormon do not leave readers that choice. The external appearance of Nephi's two eldest brothers changed within at most a few years after Lehi's death. The blackening might have been part of their plot to kill Nephi and his righteous brothers, Sam, Jacob, and Joseph. It seems likely that it happened shortly after the rift, when Nephi was not present to observe it personally, because he had fled into the wilderness for the space of many days. This may be inferred from the fact that, several years later, when Nephi engraved his condensed chronology of post-Lehi events on his small plates, he reported the blackening before mentioning any wars or contentions with the Lamanites. Nephi, who was focused on founding a new settlement and preparing to defend it, might not have learned of the blackening for some period of time. Nothing pinpoints when the change occurred, however, based on the fact that the blackening apparently involved only a dozen adults, 
it seems reasonable to surmise that it occurred when or shortly after Nephi fled. A change of phenotypical features at the time of the schism would be, in effect, a genetic mutation. If that notion does not square with logic, science, and theology, then the observed shift in their outward appearance must have been their own doing. The mark upon the murderous band, the darkness that Nephi's younger brother Jacob later would refer to as filthiness, could have been charcoal, soot, paint, or stains that they applied, perhaps in diverse patterns. The Lehite Curse to be cut off from the presence of the Lord. All references to a curse in the Book of Mormon must be understood within the Hebrew cursing tradition. References to making a covenant in the Hebrew scriptures are often a translation of karet berit, which literally means to cut a covenant. This refers to the ancient practice of making a contract or covenant that is ratified or made binding by slaughtering and cutting an animal which can suggest a serious penalty for failing to keep the covenant. The concept of cutting has echoes in other covenant-related customs and events, such as circumcision, the Nephite military commander who rent his coat to create a banner of liberty, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So too does the curse of being cut off if one violates covenants. The Apostle Paul's chastisement of early Christian converts who continued to preach circumcision is a clever example. He used this play on words. I would they were even cut off. Often the effect of a biblical curse was to be cut off from the Lord's presence or a sacred environment, as were Adam and Eve, or to be expelled from one's family or community, as was Cain after he murdered Abel. The Lamanites are a case study of dissenters who severed themselves from covenants and religious observances and were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Throughout the Book of Mormon, the curse and its removal are correlated consistently to estrangement from and reunification with the Lord and his people. The threat of being cut off is not unique to the Lamanites. Speaking to his entire family, Nephi quoted Isaiah's words to all of the house of Jacob, for my name's sake, I will defer mine anger and refrain from thee that I cut thee not off. The risk of being cut off applied to all of Lehi's descendants, actually, to anyone who turned away from God. Moreover, readers often forget the harsher curse pronounced upon the Nephites. Because of their wickedness, the Lord damned them with utter destruction, with wars and pestilences and with famines and bloodshed, even until the people of Nephi shall become extinct. The first of Nephi's personal revelations that he recorded on his small plates prophesied that Laman and Lemuel would suffer a sore curse and be cut off from the presence of the Lord. Separation was the essence of that curse. Nephi repeated that in 2 Nephi 5.20. In this same revelation... Nephi learned that he would rule and teach his brethren, and that Laman and Lemuel would have no power over him. But this original prophecy of a curse did not mention either a mark or a skin of blackness. It warned of a spiritual estrangement that could occur in a day, indeed less than a day, 
Each time Laman and Lemuel rebelled, they temporarily cut themselves off from the Lord. And each time they repented, they restored their relationship. With Lehi's dying words, he bestowed upon Laman and Lemuel his first blessing, that they would prosper in the land. However, it was conditional, as was the curse. Laman and Lemuel simply could not allow Nephi to replace Lehi, so upon Lehi's death they plotted to destroy their younger brothers, causing Nephi and his followers to flee far into the wilderness. More than ever before, the curse foretold in Nephi's prophecy was fulfilled. The Lamanites were severed from intercessory prayers and sacrifices, from the Holy Scriptures, and from inspirational teachings. They were cut off from the presence of the Lord. This was a curse that, without straining faith or reason, could be and was fulfilled in that day. In the next verse, 2 Nephi 5.21, the first sentence is followed by another that contains two independent clauses that cause confusion. This may be due in part to the biases of readers and the general absence of punctuation, paragraphs, and verses in the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon. The separation of those two independent clauses by only a semicolon muddles two distinct concepts, the curse and skin color. Dividing them might create a more effective and sensitive distinction and leave less room for a biased interpretation. One verse could deal with the curse and its internal cause, which was the hardening of hearts. The other could describe the outward mark that Nephi observed. The two verses could be repunctuated and paragraphed as follows. Verse 20, Wherefore, the word of the Lord was fulfilled, which he spake unto me, saying that, inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. And he had caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing, because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, that they had become like unto a flint. Verse 21. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. The nuanced word, wherefore, at the beginning of the clause about the Lamanites' fair appearance and the skin of blackness, leaves room to speculate how soon it came upon the small group of adults. Notably, Royal Skousen, after studying Oliver Cowdery's handwritten manuscript, agrees that the semicolon in the current printed version of verse 21 should be replaced with a period, and that the word, wherefore, should be capitalized and begin a new sentence that mentions the skin of blackness. Nephi's Theology of Causation The blackening process cannot be understood without deconstructing Nephi's words, the Lord did cause. Their theological import is not intuitive. Must they mean that by temporal intervention God immediately set a dark skin upon a dozen or so adults? Or could the Lamanites, like the Maya, have darkened themselves? Could the words, the Lord did cause, be merely a figure of speech? The solution may lie in the theology behind those words. Their purpose differs from what most Latter-day Saints expect. Nephi venerated earlier Hebrew prophets. When he preached that Moses, according to the power of God which was in him, 
divided the waters of the Red Sea, and caused water to come forth from the rock. He was quoting Isaiah, who also had written that the Lord caused the waters to flow out of the rock. Many of Jeremiah's prophecies were engraved on the brass plates, and they often said that Jehovah had caused or would cause events. Ezekiel, who began to prophesy in 598 BCE, employed the same rhetorical style. Nephi mirrored this contemporary Hebrew metaphysical perspective on causality. He recognized, as Thomas Aquinas later argued, that Jehovah was the prime mover in the universe. He revered God's omniscience and omnipotence and expressed his reverence through a traditional formal Hebraism. The Lord did cause. Hebrew scholar Michael Fishbane points out that in prophetic appeals to the seed of Abraham, God's power and providence repeatedly are emphasized in order to assuage the nation's fears that their way is hidden from God. Nephi imitated his role models. Like them, he may have used the words, the Lord did cause, to reassure his followers of God's superior dominion and perpetual watchful care. He and other Book of Mormon prophets articulated this often, sometimes characterizing it as the goodness of God. According to Reynolds and Sodal, Nephi may have taken several years to prepare his small plates, as though he were creating not only sacred but epic literature for the Nephites, reminiscent of Genesis, Exodus, and other ancient heroic ventures such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. Perhaps to inspire his people with respect for his prophetic role in the founding of the Nephite nation, Nephite's abbreviated historical account was personal and hero-centric. Nephi wrote that Laman and Lemuel conspired to slay him because under Lehi's patronage, he had become their ruler and teacher, that he fled with his family and all who would go with him, that he feared reprisals, that, quote, I, Nephi, close quote, made many swords, that he built a temple, and that he caused his people to be industrious. Nephi wrote with the artistry and deliberative style of 7th century BCE Jewish poets and prophets. His narrative emphasized divine approbation, heavenly intervention, noble heritage, and the ability, if righteous, to triumph against all odds. Nephi wanted to leave his posterity an undeniable witness that God was the ultimate source of prosperity and that disasters are the judgments of God. For the Lord is mightier than all the earth, and hath all power. The omnipotent God that Nephi hoped his descendants would remember and worship is summed up in his statement, quote, And the Lord spake, and it was done. Close quote. So, of course, drawing on Hebrew precedents, Nephi wrote that the Lord did cause the Lamanites' skin of blackness, thereby recognizing God's supremacy and legitimizing the Nephites' cultural and religious exceptionalism. Significantly, every Book of Mormon reference to the mark omits God from the calculus. For example, Mormon did not assert that it was in fact God who set the mark upon Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, and the Ishmaelitish women, only that the mark, quote, was set upon, close quote, 
the Lamanites' fathers. Divine intervention is implied only in the words of Nephi's small plates account of the prophecy. When Nephi used the phrase, the Lord did cause, to describe the appearance of the skin of blackness. His use of a traditional prophetic voice and a Hebraism do not justify making God the cause in fact. The Nephite-Lamanite Marriage Taboo When Nephi wrote about the skin of blackness, he had a growing tribe. He wanted to ensure that his sons, daughters, nieces, and nephews did not marry their vengeful cousins. He engraved his small plates specifically for his own clan. So long as Nephi's nieces and nephews were under the sway of Laman and Lemuel, they posed an existential threat. To make matters worse, Nephi recognized that the young Lamanites were fair and delightsome and could become enticing. He feared that kissing cousins would lead young Nephites into iniquity. Thus Nephi foresaw that the skin-blackening tradition would discourage exogamy, and he viewed that as providential. Centuries later, Mormon echoed Nephi. During another crisis, Mormon wrote that the mark, then worn by the Lamanites in battle, discouraged mixing that could lead Nephites to believe in incorrect traditions which would prove their destruction. It is understandable for a parent to worry about a child marrying someone who is seeking revenge upon the parents themselves or their family members and friends. Notably, however, the Lord had told Nephi at the outset that Lamanite cousins would not be loathsome if they would repent of their iniquities. When Nephites and Lamanites shared the same values, they intermarried. There is no reason to infer racism in the fatherly concerns of Nephi and Mormon. The issue was always the Lamanites' sins, not their skins. Undoubtedly, Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, and their wives had their own motives for marking themselves, and the record suggests that it had nothing to do with marriage. Nowhere in the Book of Mormon did Lamanites discourage their children from courting and marrying Nephites. On one occasion, apostate Nephite priests abducted 24 Lamanite maidens and forced them into marriage. Yet when the brides had a chance to extricate themselves, instead they begged for compassion on their Nephite husbands. A Lamanite king eagerly offered one of his daughters in marriage to a Nephite missionary. Later, a widowed Lamanite queen had no reservations about marrying a shrewd and ambitious Nephite and even allowing him to succeed to her husband's throne. Unfortunately, the Lamanites have not yet had a chance to explain their motives. In their place, the artifacts of ancient indigenous Americans now speak from the dust. Miracles The Book of Mormon soberly affirms that God is a God of miracles. But what is a miracle? John A. Widso, a noted scientist and academic who was the president of the University of Utah before becoming a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, wrote, a miracle simply means a phenomenon not understood in its cause and effect relations. He cautioned, there can be no chance in the operations of nature. This is a universe of law and order. James E. Talmage, a chemist and geologist, who also was the president of the University of Utah before being called to the Quorum of the Twelve, observed, the human sense of the miraculous wanes as comprehension of the operative process increases.
Body paint is an operative process that is natural, swift, and reversible. A child can understand and explain it. It requires no divine disruption of the natural order. It produces a skin of blackness on demand and without making sibling rivalry the cause of celestial gene splicing. Some miracles may forever remain mysterious, but the mark that some Nephite authors considered to be a blessing was the result of innovation and agency. Without the Mesoamerican evidence, a relatively sudden skin color mutation that selectively applied only to Lehi's two eldest sons and a few companions would seem like the act of an angry, impulsive, and capricious god. After all, Laman and Lemuel terrorized Nephi repeatedly during Lehi's odyssey to the Americas. There were several earlier occasions to punish them, for example, when they beat Nephi with a wooden rod outside of Jerusalem, bound him with cords intending to leave him in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts, conspired to slay both Lehi and Nephi when Ishmael died, attempted to throw Nephi from a cliff into the depths of the sea, and during the transoceanic voyage bound him with cords nearly causing the entire family to be drowned during a fierce storm. However, despite repeated attempted fratricide and even patricide, Lehi did not leave his eldest sons behind or cut them off, and the Lord did not blacken their skins. Why would God wait to set a mark upon them until they conspired against Nephi for the sixth time, and he again had escaped? The patriarch Jacob's blended family is instructive. His ten oldest sons abused their younger brother Joseph no less and traumatized their parents even more. They threw Joseph into a pit to starve, trafficked him into bondage, divided the secret prophets, destroyed their father's property, fabricated evidence of Joseph's violent death, and perpetuated a blood-stained cover-up. Yet Jehovah refrained from corporal punishment. Indeed, eventually, he rewarded them with fertile land in Goshen. Similarly, the Lamanites ultimately inherited what the Nephites originally had hoped would be their own promised land. It bears remembering that at times the Nephites became equally or even more wicked and depraved than the Lamanites. Yet there was no impact on their complexion. Indeed, in 87 BCE, the turncoat Nephites, who were known as Amlicites, personally marked their own bodies with red. God did not do it for them. The Laws of Genetics Variety in skin color is a function of melanin the natural sunscreen pigment that is produced within melanocytes in the lowest layer of the epidermis. Those cells are not instantly genetically modified to produce far more melanin and browner skin. There is no known on-off switch. Except in the case of a selective gene sweep, changes in pigmentation of a significant population require far longer than the entire recorded history of Lehi's descendants. In a small group, variations could occur rapidly, but the phenotypical features that are referred to as race developed over millennia. Innumerable minor genetic tweaks through natural selection and evolutionary adaptation allowed humans to achieve the optimal level of pigmentation and other features for the regions they ended up in. These are laws of nature. They deserve respect. Indeed, the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has stated 
that it leads to science questions regarding natural selection and adaptation of the species. The agency of man and of nature itself is reflected in the diversity of humankind. In an effort to accommodate science, a few Book of Mormon apologists have considered two potential ordinary biological processes for darkening the skin. Some have proposed intermarriage with darker indigenous peoples. But that only could have accelerated changes. It would not account for the sudden skin of blackness. Moreover, as both John Sorensen and Brant Gardner point out, if the Lamanites intermarried with natives, the Nephites likely did the same. Nibley once hinted at the possibility that a darker complexion may have resulted from sun exposure. It is true that UV rays can increase the production of melanin and over time produce a near doubling of the skin's melanin content. But that falls short of what Nephi seems to have referred to as a skin of blackness, and a so-called farmer's tan is not genetically transferable. Besides, there is no evidence that Nephite farmers and laborers were more fully clothed than their Lamanite kin, except during battles when Lamanite warriors were nearly naked. Furthermore, neither of these theories leads logically to the blackening of a select group of adults within at most a few years. Thus, both contradict the text. Moral Agency A direct causal relationship between religious orthopraxy and natural skin color is not only unscientific and counterintuitive, it controverts the revealed doctrine of moral agency and accountability. Moral agency requires freedom to choose and to act without divine meddling. Father Lehi himself, in a farewell speech, made this doctrine a fact of life and a preeminent doctrine for Latter-day Saints. It is a revealed and reliable truth what Elder Holland has referred to as, quote, divine data, close quote. Shortly before Lehi died, he taught that all men are free to act for themselves and not to be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day. It would mock Lehi's doctrine of eternal justice to assert that God blackened the skins of the very adults to whom he spoke. As Fiona and Terrell Gibbons have said, it is axiomatic that if consequences followed immediately and directly from actions, agency would be compromised. To be sure, poor choices lead to consequences, but not to a genetic mutation. Metaphorical Arguments for the Skin of Blackness Often, disciple scholars have urged a metaphorical interpretation of the skin of blackness. Some have focused on the fact that the words dark and blackness are archaic Middle Eastern literary devices. For example, the ancient Zoroastrians conceived of a cosmic conflict between good represented by light and evil represented by darkness. Therefore, these scholars argue that the skin of blackness was merely a metaphor. Applying this literary pastiche to the book's few and far between references to skin, they contend that as an ancient idiom, the phrase skin of blackness should not be read as racially charged. As for the word white, the 1828 Webster's Dictionary of the American Language said that it referred to purity. 
True to that definition, the Book of Mormon often uses the word white when it refers to people who are cleansed through the blood of the Lamb. In fact, almost half of the 28 or so Book of Mormon references to the words white, whiter, and whiteness are figures of speech for spotlessness. However, although light versus dark juxtapositions in the Book of Mormon are consistent with ancient Middle Eastern culture, this argument has its limitations. The counterpoint is that the metaphoric contrast of white and black, so common today in Western culture, was not prevalent in the Bible. Its authors used the imagery of light and darkness with great complexity. Moreover, when Book of Mormon authors intended a metaphorical meaning for white or for darkness, often their intent is obvious. Nibley first called attention to the ancient coincidentia oppositorum of dark versus light and argued that the mark was not a racial thing. Nibley noted that this ancient dichotomy sometimes influenced not only perceptions about the human condition generally, but about individual circumstances, including one's countenance or complexion. Although he hypothesized, Nibley did not embrace an entirely metaphorical explanation for the mark, nor did he see the conflict between the two Book of Mormon cultures as an allegory. Indeed, it would be a stretch to argue that when Nephite prophets reported real-time and sometimes eyewitness accounts of the Lamanites with terms like skin of blackness, darkness of skins, mark or filthiness, they intended those words to be read centuries later, not factually, but only metaphorically. Often apologists start with the assumption that racism was part of Nephi's cultural baggage, that he brought it with him. However, scholars today consider race and racism to be relatively recent social constructs. There is no consensus among scholars of what racism is. In fact, no consensus whether races exist at all. Before the Common Era, religious beliefs, ethnicity, and geographic origin were often seen as relevant distinctions, but not race, as we think of it today. In fact, according to available historical records, when Nephi left Jerusalem, phenotypic features were not used to discriminate among humans. Pigmentation and other attributes that are now associated with race may have been observed, but skin color was not the basis for distinctions. Joseph Smith's revelations, known as Selections from the Book of Moses, tell of complexion-based prejudice before the time of the Great Flood. However, in the post-Diluvian world of Noah's descendants, through the lineages of Japheth, Shem, and Ham, there was great tolerance of racial diversity in the Middle East, especially in Egypt. There, the long history of population intermingling along the Nile had made contacts between people of different skin colors routine. Egyptians had been acquainted with and fought alongside black mercenaries at least as early as 2000 BCE, and as a result of long-standing familiarity, saw nothing unusual in the Cushites, color, or other physical characteristics. Egyptians were mostly tolerant of diversity in physical appearance. So were their Middle Eastern neighbors. From the time of Moses forward, the Hebrews saw themselves as a chosen people who were called to respect the Torah's command not to vex a stranger, to treat him as one born among you, and to love him as thyself. Scholars tell us that the earliest Jews distinguished themselves not by race, 
but by their monotheism, cultural practices, diet, and language. The Torah legitimized slavery, but without making a value judgment about physical appearance. Holy Writ allowed Hebrews to make servants of both fellow Hebrews and the children of strangers, whether among them or in adjoining lands. It appears that Jewish racism may not have surfaced until they themselves were enslaved during their Babylonian exile, after Jerusalem was sacked in 586 BCE. Only after that date do scattered Talmudic and Midrashic sources evidence Jewish reliance on the so-called Hamitic curse to deem Canaanites, and perhaps also the blacks of Africa, suitable for perpetual bondage. Because Lehi foresaw the destruction of Jerusalem, he and his followers escaped in time to avoid the Babylonian conquest. Thus, the perspectives of Lehi and Nephi on strangers and foreigners, including Africans, were not tainted by the biases that emerged during the exilic period. The brass plates that they carried with them contained the words of the holy prophets even down to the reign of Zedekiah, including prophecies of Isaiah that expressed a universalistic theology. Isaiah's influence upon Nephi's beliefs is undeniable. So that his people would lift up their hearts and rejoice for all men, Nephi engraved many of Isaiah's words upon his small plates, including one of Isaiah's earliest visions, that the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and all nations shall flow unto it. It is noteworthy that the first verse of prophecy that Nephi engraved on the small plates was his own father's visionary and inclusive declaration that the power and goodness and mercy of the Lord God Almighty are over all the inhabitants of the earth. The brass plates also included many of the prophecies of Jeremiah, and Lehi's departure occurred just as a conspiracy of Jewish princes who rejected doomsday prophecies had cast Jeremiah into prison. Often forgotten is the fact that it was Ebed Melech, a black Cushite from Ethiopia and confident of King Zedekiah. The name can mean servant or slave of the king, who intervened on Jeremiah's behalf. With Zedekiah's approval, he made a rope of worn-out clothes and rotten rags and secretly rescued Jeremiah from the miry dungeon where the princes had left him to die. For Lehi and Nephi, Ebed melech who had risen to prominence in Zedekiah's court, would have been a hero. Antiquity's historical archives are admittedly incomplete, but the apparent absence of skin-color-based xenophobia in the pre-exilic Middle East suggests that Nephi was not expressing an inherited cultural bias when he wrote that the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon Laman and Lemuel. There is scant evidence for branding Nephi as a bigot or inferring systemic racial bias in the Book of Mormon, despite its internecine rivalry. From a historian's point of view, to impute racism as we know it to that period would be anachronistic. It emerged later and elsewhere. Nephi seems to have authentically reflected his own era and upbringing when he declared that the Lord inviteth all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, including black and white, and that all are alike unto God. 
It might be tempting to tilt toward a metaphorical explanation for the skin of blackness because the same verse in which these words appear mentions the curse and then figuratively likens the hearts of Laman and Lemuel unto a flint, a possible reference to the black obsidian that was widely used in Mesoamerica. Both hearts and skins are anatomical, so inferring another analogy for the mark upon the Lamanite skin may not seem unreasonable. However, the heart's flint simile has limited probative value regarding what Nephi observed. The Book of Mormon almost always describes it only as a mark and never expressly uses it symbolically for anything. Occasionally, the Book of Mormon uses white to describe the incomparable radiance, brightness, and glory of God's presence, which rabbinic literature refers to as the Shekinah. For example, Jehovah touched 16 transparent stones, causing them to shine. The tree of life in Lehi's vision bore fruit that was white to exceed all the whiteness that he had ever seen. And in Nephi's messianic vision, the Virgin Mary appeared exceedingly fair and white when she was under the influence of the Holy Spirit before giving birth to the Lamb of God. Nephi foresaw in vision that the disciples of the Lord would be made white in the blood of the Lamb because of their faith. And indeed, the book's account of the visit of Jesus to the Americas after his resurrection says that he blessed his disciples and they were transfigured in his presence and made white. At that moment, there was nothing upon earth so white as the whiteness of the countenance and garments of the glorified Lord and his disciples as he smiled upon them. Despite these superlatives, however, the common Middle Eastern ancestry of Mary, the Nephites, and the Lamanites suggests that all these individuals had dark hair, dark eyes, and a Mediterranean complexion. None had what we refer to today as white skin. They were not Northern Europeans. The Shekinah illuminated Mary and the Nephite Twelve. It enlightened the tree of life, its fruit, and the transparent stones. The Book of Mormon appears to refer to a white, natural human complexion only three times. Twice it is in Nephi's words. In neither of these cases, however, is white a trope for purity. First, in Nephi's futuristic vision of America, he foresaw Gentiles who lived across the many waters who would be led by the Spirit to flee from captivity, battle their mother Gentiles, and be delivered, although, as foreseen by Nephi, chiefly by the power of God and because the wrath of God was upon all those who were gathered together against them. These Gentile colonists he described as white and exceedingly fair and beautiful, like unto the Nephites before their eventual destruction. However, Nephites' reference to white Gentiles merely contrasted the less melanated skin of both the Nephites and the Western European immigrants to the darker natural complexions or artificially darkened bodies that he had observed either in the old world or the new. Nephi's vision foresaw that the colonists humbled themselves before the Lord and that the power of the Lord was with them, but he did not describe the colonists as pure. Likewise, the Nephites often were not pure. Indeed, beginning 200 years before their destruction, they began to tolerate all manner of wickedness. And near the end of their civilization, Mormon, in his final letter to his son Moroni, said that he could not even describe in words the extent of their depravity.
Nephi's second mention was his nostalgic reference to the Lamanites as white before the family schism. This reminiscence refers to their comparatively lighter appearance, like that of Lehi's entire colony, among other peoples. Although the daughters and sons of Lehi and Sariah had Mediterranean complexions, they had less melanin than some ethnic groups in the Old World who were familiar to Nephi. For example, the dark-skinned inhabitants of Palestine before the arrival of the Semitic people, Ethiopians in the court of Zedekiah, or the descendants of Cush in southern Arabia, where Lehi's pilgrimage likely traveled. Anciently, similar diversity existed in the New World. The skin shades of surviving native peoples in Mesoamerica range from dark brown to virtual white. Thus, after arriving in the Americas, Nephi also may have observed inhabitants with darker complexions. The third time, it was Mormon as editor who used white to describe all of the Lamanites who had become converted to the Lord in 15 CE and who merged with the Nephites when robbers were spreading death and carnage throughout the land. All who resisted the robbers' threats, including previously converted Lamanites, were compelled for the safety of their lives to unite. Mormon, without hyperbole or relying on divine intervention, says that the skin of those who were Lamanites became white like unto the Nephites. Notably, at that time the spiritual paradigm was inverted. These Nephites were far from pure. They did still remain in wickedness, notwithstanding the much preaching and prophesying which was sent among them. The coalition, therefore, was a military necessity rather than the result of a religious epiphany. Mormon's observation about the Lamanites' complexion had nothing to do with their conversion. They were already righteous, indeed more righteous than the Nephites. There is no reason to assume that a supposed change in the Lamanites' complexion six centuries earlier was genetically reversed in 15 CE. It is more practical to infer that for various reasons, they renounced the use of soot, body paint, and stains, and exposed their natural complexion. One might be tempted to ask whether the Lamanites used white body paint or bleaching agents to become white like unto the Nephites. The text offers no hint of that. Besides, it would have served no practical or tactical purpose, as did darkening. Although a few instances of white body paint in Mesoamerica have been documented, so far, the Mesoamerican artifacts do not link white with religiosity. In Maya art, blue, which is never mentioned in the Book of Mormon, eventually became the color associated with priests and gods. Nephi knew how to use the word black to describe skin color. When he stated that the Lord welcomes all, black and white, bond and free, male and female, he was describing biological and cultural conditions. He did not use black as a synonym for evil, nor white as a substitute for pure. He did not use black and white to proclaim sinner and saint alike unto God. Rather, for Nephi, despite any differences in the human family, all are privileged, the one like unto the other. Nephi testified of a God who welcomes all, whatever their complexion, sex, or social standing whose power and goodness and mercy are over all the inhabitants of the earth, and whose holy Messiah will make intercession for all the children of men. Today, the obscure and unconventional phrase, skin of blackness, seems to have come out of nowhere. 
but it is not intrinsically racist, nor would it have been in Nephi's day. Arguably, it is a Mesoamericanism, a unique expression that is fully understandable only in terms of the civilization that prevailed in that part of the ancient world before A.D. 1500. It might have been a Mayan term of art, an ancient Middle Eastern idiom, or both. It may have been meant to distinguish between a naturally black complexion and one that was artificial. These linguistic questions are for Mayanists and scholars of Hebrew, Assyrian, and other influences on Jewish culture before the Babylonian exile. For reasons that are not yet known, Nephi chose a phrase that was cryptic, but it was not a slip of Nephi's stylus, of Joseph Smith's tongue, or of Oliver Cowdery's pen. Moreover, the terms skin of blackness and mark were racially neutral. They had no racist connotation whatsoever. It is a slippery slope to rationalize or to impute a chronologically distant metaphorical sense to words or to a religious cultural conflict between two peoples whose phenotypic features are merely assumed to be different. It is offensive to people of color to suggest that the Book of Mormon is color-coded, even in a non-literal way based on a Middle Eastern tradition. The book's authors, including Nephi, who created both the large and small plates, as well as Mormon, who abridged Nephi's large plates and created his own eponymous volume, never hinted that they were compiling an extended allegory about a biracial society. Mormon's son finished his father's work not by praising him for writing inspirational literature, but by declaring that the record was true. For Nibley as well, the Book of Mormon was not a racial Jeremiah. His conviction of its divine providence was based on faith, not tangible proof, yet he devoted his life to proving that the book indisputably and on the world's terms was an authentic ancient record of actual events. Reconciling the Book of Mormon with the body paint tradition Nothing in the Book of Mormon explicitly or implicitly contradicts the body paint rationale. Readers who are willing to interact with the text in a racially neutral way will find that all of its text, including sermons and cross-cultural stories, can be squared with the custom. Reviewing these social interactions in fresh, thought-provoking ways requires both exegesis, taking an interpretation out of the plain words on the page, as well as eisegesis, which according to James Faulkner means, this is what I thought, what I brought into the text when I read that particular scripture. Faulkner urges us to question the text, but at the same time, question all of our presuppositions. The many Lamanite Nephite encounters are fertile ground for applying this approach to the long periods of silence in the text about skin color. Often, when a reference to physical appearance might be expected, there's not a word. My personal musings about several cross-cultural events that might have triggered color commentary if there had been an actual skin color difference are in the appendix. One event shortly after Nephi's death deserves singular scrutiny. Nephi's younger brother, Jacob, first took the occasion to rebuke Nephite men for their pride. He testified that God created all flesh and that one being is as precious in his sight as another. 
He then emphasized that point, saying, Revile no more against the Lamanites because of the darkness of their skins. He condemned Nephite prejudice based on that one aspect of the Lamanites' appearance. He also censured the Nephite men for their moral filthiness while extolling the chastity of the Lamanite husbands and fathers. Jacob said that unless the arrogant, adulterous, lecherous Nephites repented, the Lamanites would be figuratively whiter in the eyes of God. Viewed through a racially neutral lens and with a Mesoamerican filter, Jacob's reference to the darkness of his nephew's skins certainly could have referred to their use of charcoal, soot, or body paint, a filthiness they had taken upon themselves because of their fathers. His words parallel and were the precursor for those of Mormon, who later said that the skins of the Lamanites were dark according to the mark which was set upon their fathers. When Jacob preached this sermon, the Lamanites vividly remembered and resented Nephi's escape. Perhaps more than ever they were forced to survive by stalking wild beasts and plundering. Jacob sharply contrasted the Lamanite men who, notwithstanding their more primitive living conditions, loved their wives and their children, to the Nephite men who, instead, loved their riches, grieved the hearts of their wives and children, and were guilty of fornication and lasciviousness and every kind of sin. A hasty reading of Jacob's speech might infer a confusing link between the curse of being cut off and the Lamanites' dark appearance. The Nephites, he said, despised their brethren because of the cursings which hath come upon their skins. This curious plural noun, which appears in the original printer's manuscript, deserves a word search. In the Book of Mormon, the curses of captivity, destruction, and being cut off from the Lord are often referred to as cursings. These oaths were a common ancient warfare practice and Hebrew military tradition. Joshua, the leader of Israel's armies, recited cursings to his people. After vanquishing the city of Ai, he assembled the elders, officers, judges, and priests on each side of the ark, erected an altar, wrote the law of Moses upon stones, and then read the blessings and cursings. The Torah refers to an oath of cursing and to words of cursing, the Psalms, to a wicked mouth that is full of cursing. The Book of Mormon recognizes the rhetorical value and military role of cursings, not only upon enemies, but upon comrades and even oneself. Before going to war, Lamanites swore in their wrath to destroy the Nephites and their records and traditions. One bloodthirsty Lamanite leader publicly cursed himself and his warriors with the words, we will perish or conquer. Another cursed God and swore with an oath to drink Nephite blood. The Nephites had a similar custom that also included self-malediction. In a dramatic pre-war ceremony, Nephite warriors symbolically rent their garments and cast them at the feet of their captain. They then covenanted that if they fell into transgression, they likewise should be cast at the feet of their enemies, imprisoned, sold as slaves, or slain. The self-cursing tradition reappeared in South America centuries later in the motto embroidered on Simon Bolivar's black banner, Muerte o Libertad. In North America, it became Patrick Henry's vow, Give me liberty or give me death. Maya warfare was entwined with religion. 
and was a deeply rooted ritualized institution. As part of pre-war dedication or consecration rituals, ancient Mesoamericans were proficient in imbuing or ensouling places with supernatural powers. In times of war, cursings likely were common. When Lamanites supplied body paint, they may have simultaneously cursed their enemies, and probably even themselves, swearing, we will perish if they failed to exact revenge. This could clarify Jacob's nexus between cursings and the skins of enemy Lamanites. The War of Words The Book of Mormon is the account of siblings and cousins who sometimes fought with weapons and occasionally with words. The Lamanites' stereotypical anti-Nephitisms were liars, deceivers, and robbers. They had their reasons for these clichés. Laman and Lemuel could hardly forget Nephi's subtlety when, as payback for Laban's extortion in Jerusalem, Nephi killed Laban, disguised himself in his garments, absconded with Laban's armor, breastplate, and sword, impersonated Laban in order to deceive his servant and convince him to remove the brass plates from Laban's treasury, and then seized Laban's servant outside Jerusalem's walls and held him captive until he agreed to join Lehi's secretive exodus. For Laman and Lemuel, Nephi cemented his reputation for being cagey, when just in the nick of time he stole away from Lehi's New World settlement with all of the family's heirlooms and whatsoever things were possible. At times, Nephites reciprocated with ethnocentric, anti-Lamanitisms that today sound pejorative. Their reductive stereotypes included loathsome, lazy, idle, bloodthirsty, wild, hardened, stiff-necked, and ferocious. However, demeaning words occur relatively rarely in 500-plus pages spanning 1,000 years of history. More frequently, Nephite prophets praised the Lamanites. Moreover, they reserved some of their most biting criticism for the Nephites themselves. Critical thinking about the text's behavioral-based stereotypes led Carrie Hull to conclude that they were often demonstrably incorrect. For example, given Nephi's legacy, it was ironic for Nephites to demean the Lamanites as those who resorted to mischief and subtlety. One Nephite leader recognized the Lamanites as a strong people. Others conceded that Lamanites prospered through trade and wisdom that it was only the more idle part who lived in the wilderness, and that Nephites also indulged in idleness, thieving, and robbery. Finally, no epithets for the Lamanites evidenced racism. Not one of them is the equivalent of a modern-day racial or ethnic slur. Offense taken by contemporary readers seems to be influenced by current cultural prejudices. Even after many generations, the Lehites were one extended family and despite some intermarriage with other peoples in the land, likely had similar physical features with relatively minor variations from the bodily norms of their Mediterranean-type ancestors. As far as we know, they never considered themselves to be two races or distinct ethnic groups. Although Lehi and Sariah parented two competitive clans, colonies, cultures, societies, and quasi-nation-states, the Nephites continually referred to the Lamanites as their brethren, a term of endearment that affirms their homogeneity as an extended family. 
Remarkably, Moroni, who watched Lamanites savagely destroy his father, family, and friends, still considered his bloodthirsty enemies to be close relatives, charitably referring to them in his closing chapter as his beloved brethren. Nephite authors used similar terms for Lamanites more than 50 times, sometimes even calling them dearly beloved. As John Tvednes pointed out, these are not terms that one would expect to find in a society that holds racist views toward a neighboring people. Reading racial intolerance into the words of Nephite authors would be anachronistic to the Book of Mormon era. Moreover, Joseph Smith never referred to the Lamanite-Nephite division in racial terms. From the tense opening scenes of the book he translated until its apocalyptic finale, Lehi's posterity were one people in the eyes of the Almighty who, according to the text, did not play favorites based on lineage or appearance. Conclusion To date, Latter-day Saint scholars have depended upon traditions and textual analysis rooted in the Old World to defend the Book of Mormon. This approach anchors the text within the Semitic tradition and adds gravitas to the Church's rejection of any theory that black or dark skin is a sign of a curse. However, prior explanations regarding the skin of blackness fail to consider the data now available from the ancient New World. Relevant Mesoamerican data in the form of murals, vases, plates, and codices has been a long time in coming, and surely other facts are yet to be unearthed, but expert opinions about the evidence curated from what seems to be the most likely mise-en-scene finally yields a fact-based theory that reveals the practical and tactical motives for a self-administered, removable skin of blackness, honors the doctrine of moral agency, respects the principles of human genetics, and removes any racial inference that might be implied in the words blackness, dark, and mark. A forte of this thesis is that it is based on authentic artifacts, that have been interpreted by Mayanists who are not Latter-day Saints, and whose opinions about the use of body paint appear to be objective and neutral. Whether the Lamanites lived within the Maya realm or elsewhere, the use of black paints and stains was congruent with their hunter-gatherer-warrior lifestyle, especially during their early years. Simply put, it meant less insect bites by day, fewer casualties on the battlefield, and better camouflage by night and in the forest. It would have been a common-sense response to their environment. It may well be another example of Occam's razor, the so-called law of parsimony. Among competing theories for the skin of blackness, the simpler one, removable body paint, should be preferred. Elder James E. Talmage taught that Genesis was never intended as a textbook on geology, archaeology, earth science, or man science, nor is the Book of Mormon. But it does describe a setting in which the Lamanites could have applied soot, paint, and stains to their skins for any number of reasons. To spite Nephi? To spurn his religious traditions? To seek revenge when he ransacked their camp? to show allegiance with the Maya, to camouflage themselves when hunting, to facilitate stealth and plunder, to appear intimidating on the battlefield, 
to distinguish themselves in close-quarters combat, to allow their women to adorn their skins with designs, and to send social messages. Cultural archaeology now allows readers to picture the Lamanites setting that skin of blackness upon themselves and to recognize, as Nibley presciently predicted, that it was a reversible process, that it was their choice, and that they controlled it. The Oxford Dictionary defines a myth as a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining a natural or social phenomenon, and typically involving supernatural beings or events, a widely held but false belief or idea. New World facts now challenge all prior assumptions about the skin of blackness. Demythicizing that distinctive phrase consigns the notion that the Lord darkened the Lamanite's natural complexion to where it belongs, the folklore shelf of the Gospel Library. With newfound curiosity, reluctant readers, and especially people of color, can read the book for its precepts and for its witness of a God who invites all to come unto him, without wondering when an unwelcome inference about the mark or skin of blackness will reappear. President Russell M. Nelson's ministry has refocused the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on removing divisive attitudes and practices and gathering God's entire family. He has emphasized that the Lord's blessings are for every person who chooses to let God prevail in his or her life. To that end, he has called upon church members to abandon their prejudices, to work tirelessly to build bridges of understanding rather than creating walls of segregation, and to minister to those who are excluded, marginalized, judged, overlooked, abused, and discounted. He has urged Latter-day Saints not to merely passively accept, but to proactively champion diversity, inclusion, and equality in order rightfully to claim the title, The Restored Church. Latter-day Saints often associate that title with the restoration of priesthood authority, doctrines, ordinances, spiritual gifts, temples, and church officers, all of which are vital links to Christ's New Testament church. However, President Nelson seems to envision these as means, not ends. He sees God's purpose as uniting the entire human family and restoring all of God's children to wholeness with special care for those who suffer on the margins of society. Faith in the Book of Mormon may be grounded in the book's compelling witness of the Savior's atonement. It may stem from a conviction that the book not only teaches spiritual truths, but is an authentic record of historical facts. Or it may spring from the goodness of the lifestyle and sense of divine presence to which the book's precepts lead. Readers have different perspectives on what is truth and how they discern it. As Terrell and Fiona Gibbons write, different ways of knowing exist, and the body of Christ needs its full complement of members. Regardless of the source of their faith, Latter-day Saints consecrate their time, talents, and resources to the kingdom of God. This includes church members who have sincere questions about the Book of Mormon translation process, DNA evidence, 19th century material that appears in the text, references to horses and steel, the skin of blackness, etc. 
All these believers seek assurance of God's universal love. As Joseph Smith recognized, for any rational being to center his or her life in God, it is essentially necessary to believe that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation those who fear God and work righteousness are accepted of him. Thus, particularly in an era of racial and ethnic strife, Many readers yearn to know that the Book of Mormon has no hidden racial agenda or subplot that demeans people of color, and that its prophets and translator exemplified God's love for the entire human family. Whatever the nature of one's convictions, Moroni, the book's final author, promises that a sure witness comes through faith, prayer, a sincere heart, real intent, and the power of the Holy Ghost. Evidence of the Mesoamerican body paint custom is not proof of that sort, but it is an objective, evidence-based rebuttal to the charge of racism in the Book of Mormon. It reinforces the book's message that God embraces people whose skin tones cover the entire sepia spectrum, from ebony to ivory, that he desires that every creature experience joy, and fulfill the measure of its creation, and that he loves all women, men, young adults, youth, and children because of our unique personalities and differences, rather than in spite of them. It allows the book to take its rightful place as prime proof that peace and harmony abound only within a social framework of equality. It removes what Joseph Smith referred to as shackles of superstition and bigotry and helps to heal racial wounds. It is a factual imprimatur upon the Book of Mormon's prophetic promise that God is mindful of every people, whatsoever land they may be in, and his bowels of mercy are over all the earth. Author's Bio Garrett Mark Steenblick received his B.A. from the Honors Program at the University of Utah, where he was president of the Latter-day Saint Student Association. Later, he was called to the Melchizedek Priesthood MIA, Single Adults, General Board. He obtained his law degree at BYU and was a member of its law review before commencing his legal career in Phoenix, Arizona. He served as Sister Cities Commission and, in 2001, was called as mission president for the Abidjan Ivory Coast Mission, which included the French-speaking countries of Ivory Coast, Togo, Benin, Cameroon, and the Central African Republic. France appointed him to be its honorary consul in Arizona, a position he held for 19 years, and for which he was decorated as Chevalier de l'Ordre National du Mérite. For his years of service to young men, the Boy Scouts of America awarded him the Silver Beaver, in 2015, when the Arizona Ecumenical Council became an interreligious organization, Arizona Faith Network, Garrett was called to represent the church on its board of directors. He continues in that role and with his wife Judy serves on the church's Phoenix Metro Communications Council. They have three children, five grandchildren, and are actively engaged in interfaith outreach, especially to the African-American Christian clergy and community leaders.
This has been a recording of Demythicizing the Lamanites' Skin of Blackness by Garrett M. Steenblick, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 49, 2021, read by the author. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.